House of Commons, early day motion 475, tabled 7th of February 1990, quote, that this house notes the independent newspaper's claim to be a serious quality newspaper purporting to demonstrate high standards of objectivity, issuing such potential sources of misinformation as the parliamentary lobby system, seeking joint commitments with other newspapers to, amongst other things, the prompt correction of factual errors. Further notes the September 1987 article in The Independent by David McKitterick, said by him at the time to have been the result of an investigation into Colin Wallace, and which blackguarded his claims as being those of a liar and a fantasist, the basis of which article was in fact being offered to, and had been rejected by, other British newspapers as being from dubious sources. Notes that not one word of the McKittrick smear has been withdrawn, and that indeed it was compounded by him, in The Independent on the 3rd of February 1990, notes that despite press council requests, Andreas Whittam-Smith has repeatedly avoided meeting Wallace to discuss his complaints and demands that such a meeting takes place and that due apology and recompense be made to Colin Wallace for the deeply damaging misinformation The Independent has published, which misinformation may have been used by the authorities to continue the cover-up of malpractice and treason in Northern Ireland. I had a dream about this place. to Ghost Stories for the End of the World, the point of the last couple of months worth of episodes, starting with Britpop. Um, it's been to tell you a, f- a few stories about my country by way of setting up threads that we're going to pursue in more detail in 2024. This will be after we're done with the next huge long-form series that starts in November. Now, Britpop was a way to kind of just ease back into discussing the UK, you know. And we we tentatively explored a few reasons for why this country is the way it is by looking at the interplay between cultural memory and the media. Then we had the Cartel World episodes. They gave us a chance to discuss the arms industry and, you know, the relationship between business and intelligence here. And then the Brinks Match Show helped us expand on the city and money laundering and organized crime and police corruption. And you can think of them all. Um, especially tonight's show, as foundations for much bigger structures that we'll build next year. Now, I went back and forth on what the subject of the final UK episode of 2023 should be about. And if I'm being honest, I wanted to hold off on this one until next year, but current events being what they are, um, I think it'd be a crime not to at least introduce Colin Wallace and give you an overview of his life and his times. And this is not only because a lot of the events and the crimes that he's connected to are going to appear again in the show, but it's because his story 
tells us what appeals to a certain kind of person about the life of a spook, you know. And more importantly, I think it tells us what the cost of that life is, you know, the price that you and the people you care about can end up paying. And Wallace shows us what they make you give so that you can stay inside this secret city of theirs. And I think you'll see that most of the major questions his story poses about Britain and the establishment and terrorism and foreign policy and the press and the security services and how different players all feed off each other and uphold one another to create this entirely artificial reality and this fake sense of national mythology, um, those questions are still relevant, especially if you've been following the news here in Britain in the last couple of weeks with everything that's kicked off in uh you know, Gaza. And it's the way that they try to sell this artificial version of reality domestically and the, de the degree to which people buy into it or not. That's what I also find highly relevant about this. So tonight we are going to round off this um, reintroduction to the UK, to the haunted kingdom, as it were, by talking about uh, dirty wars, blackmail, UK Gladio, and how the media here is used by different factions in ways that kind of blow a big fuck-off hull right through any laughable idea that we have a free press that's genuinely interested in telling truth to power and yada, 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 you know. So we'll start with some basics, right? Basic biographical details. So Colin Wallace, um, joining the British Army for him, that was an inevitability. He said this many times. His dad fought in World War I and he was wounded in action. And thereafter, he joined the South African Army and served a spell in the Royal Air Force Volunteer Reserves. And both his dad and his uncle went on to serve in World War II. This was a military family. Now, Wallace was born in 1943 in Randallstown, which is a tiny little place of about 5,000 people in Northern Ireland. Uh, Colin Wallace himself is from Northern Ireland. Now, Randallstown is also where John Bodking Adams was born in 1899. And Adams was from a Plymouth Brethren family. He went on to kill about 160, 165 of his patients as a practicing GP. Uh, this has nothing to do with Colin Wallace. It's just a weird indirect connection there to the Plymouth Brethren. So Wallace grew up in a very loyalist area in Northern Ireland, and his parents were Ulster Scots Presbyterians. And at grammar school, uh, Wallace joined the cadets. And in the early 60s, he signed up for the Territorial Army. And it's actually been renamed the Army Reserve now, but everyone here still calls it the TAs. You know, it's just one of those things. And they have a rep as being full of um, weekend warriors. So, you know, think Gareth from The Office, that kind of person. Now, that isn't entirely accurate. And in fact, the TA, it has been deployed overseas plenty of times. And during the Cold War, it ended up becoming a great front and a recruiting pool for the UK's myriad stay-behind units, you know, the Gladio networks. And in fact, the SAS and the Honourable Artillery Company regiments of the TA, they were sent to West Germany to help support the Gellin network while also setting up British stay-behind operations there. Now, because we never really investigated the extent of our Gladio um, operations, 
we can only guess as to the full scope of them. We have a pretty good idea of what kind of paramilitary groups and which military and intelligence officials were attached to them, as you'll see in this episode. But we've never had an official, transparent public inquiry into it all. In fact, come to think of it, there was a unit called B Squadron 23 Special Air Service. This was based in my hometown of Leeds, where I come from. Leeds is in the north of England, in case you can't tell from the accent. Um, this was a stay-behind unit, and it was inside the Territorial Army. And a guy called Barry Prudhomme, he was trained by this unit and allegedly, you know, flopped out of the training. And he ended up going crazy and killing a couple of people, including a cop, which led to, I believe, the biggest manhunt in British history. I think it was bigger than the Ripper um, manhunt. This is a story that I'll tell you another time, probably next year, when we actually visit the North properly. But yeah, a bit of local colour for you there. So anyway, Wallace distinguished himself, even as a part-timer. Uh, he was an excellent marksman, and he seemed to command respect from his fellow soldiers, you know, to such an extent that the chief of staff of Northern Ireland Command tapped him up directly and asked him to join the army full-time as part of the Ulster Defence Regiment. Now, there was a diversion on the way here because he served in the Ulster Special Constabulary as a marksman and then as an assistant information officer for the Ministry of Defence. And this was between 1968 and 1971. An assistant information officer for the Ministry of Defence, I mean... We've established already, your antenna should be perking. He was stationed at Thipville Barracks in Lisbon, which is in Northern Ireland, while he was an assistant information officer. And I've got a few notes that we need to keep in mind about the Ulster Special Constabulary. So I'll call them the USC, but they're actually known as the B Specials, or they were known as that. And they functioned as a kind of militarized police force. It was somewhat similar to the gendarmes in Belgium. Now, the USC was active for about 50 years, between roughly 1920 and 1970, and it's now part of Northern Irish folklore, is this unit. You know, it casts a huge shadow over the political memory of Northern Ireland. They were described as the rock on which the IRA would always founder, and they were composed almost entirely of die-hard Protestants with a vicious, vicious anti-Catholic anti-Republican ethos. Uh, they were implicated in the killings of IRA members and civilians in the Irish Civil War and right up through the 1960s, and they were deployed to support the Royal Ulster Constabulary at the start of the Troubles in August of 1969. And this was as, you know, the riots were spreading across Northern Ireland. And it's important to point out here that the USC wasn't trained to deal with riots uh, remember that, you know, it's got these sectarian leanings. Well, throw in the fact that it was an armed police unit, and you can imagine the fear that, you know, understandably spread through Catholic communities as the B-Specials turned out in force. And a few of them actually did try to police the crowds that were taken to the streets at the time without, you know, adopting a side. But by and large, they eventually threw in with the Protestants. So they let a crowd of loyalists rush a Catholic neighborhood in Belfast. They opened fire on Catholic protesters in the provincial towns of Northern Ireland. They joined in with uh, rioting uh, 
in Derry, Protestant rioting, and they ran what was called mobs of Protestants who would storm Catholic areas in Belfast and basically rampage with impunity. And again, we shan't get too deep into all this here. Uh, I highly recommend a BBC documentary called Spotlight on the Troubles um, to get a feel for how so much of the violence that triggered the Troubles to begin with was you know, instigated, if not orchestrated, by the UK security services using outfits like the Ulster Special Constabulary. And three years into the Troubles, Colin Wallace joined the Ulster Defence Regiment as a captain. And like the USC, the UDR was also known as an incredibly sectarian uh, force. And in fact, as the Troubles really started to heat up, the few Catholic soldiers... Um, that were enlisted in the regiment, they resigned. And similarly, it also had close ties to loyalist paramilitary groups like the Ulster Volunteer Force, you know, the UVF. And one of the most notorious groups in the Ulster Defence Regiment was the Glenane Group, which also drew members from the RUC as well as the army. And for all intents and purposes, the Glenane Group was a death squad, a sectarian death squad. Uh, they committed about 120 murders of Catholics that we know about. Um, they, we can definitely tie 120 murders to the Glenane Group. And of these, zero of them had any connection to the IRA. Now, Colin Wallace's keen feel for intelligence work, that had caught his boss's attention at the MOD. And in the UDR, he ran the psychological operations team. And his brief was to win hearts and minds in both the loyalist and the Republican communities. And a routine part of his job was persuading journalists to publish stories that were intended to undermine support for the Republican cause and make IRA fighters and IRA supporters feel like their cause was hopeless. Now, given what eventually happened to Colin Wallace, it's important to bear this in mind which is the ease with which the average British journalist can be bought off and manipulated, especially if the stories they're being asked to publish chime with their own biases and those of their editors and, you know, the owners of their newspapers. Um, that's something that is integral to understanding not just this story, but so fucking much about how politics functions here. Now, some of Colin Wallace's schemes, I think we've actually explored before. I believe we discussed uh, how it was his idea to stage fake black mass rituals around Northern Ireland as a way to spook superstitious locals on either side of the sectarian divide. I think we did that for a Halloween episode, but I could be wrong there. Um, now, the goal was apparently to tarnish the image of paramilitary groups and ensure that younger members of both communities would stay home at night rather than go off to find trouble. Remember that in this early phase of the Troubles, the British government and the British army were still telling themselves um, a noble lie, that they were just there to keep the peace and that this was actually a squabble between local political factions, you know, even as MI5 and what they call the Dirty Trick Squad were moving in and setting up and throwing their weight hard behind the uh, the Protestant side. Now, Colin Wallace's uh, group, his team, they even fed bullshit stories to the papers in Northern Ireland about, you know, like ritualistic animal sacrifices and the like during this 
black mass panic that they were trying to ferment. And then the cops pulled a dead 10-year-old called Brian McDermott out of the river um, in Belfast. And he'd obviously been murdered and his body had been burned and whoever killed him had stuffed him in a sack before they threw him into the water. So inevitably, the rumor started spreading that he'd been murdered by Satanists or, you know, practitioners of black magic. It is possible that his death may have had something to do with the security services. Uh, he's been included as one of the lost boys of Belfast by some researchers and journalists who've taken another look at murders they believed are linked to King Kara. We'll return to this. So I don't want to give you the impression that Colin Wallace was some kind of sectarian maniac by telling you all this. Um, like most good intelligence operatives, he was acutely self-aware and at the same time just completely absorbed in the business of intelligence, you know. And he had a kind of widescreen view of the situation in Northern Ireland. Uh, he was definitely committed to one side of the conflict, but something in him began to shift as the years rolled on. And I think it's safe to say that he considered himself a professional soldier and spook first and foremost. Uh, his bosses in Northern Ireland and the brass at MI5, they considered him an outstanding intelligence operative. And yeah, they thought of him as an expert on the Northern Ireland situation. He was described as in, indispensable to operations there by more than one commanding officer. And he was basically just one of those guys who excels so much in the role that he's been given that he's trusted to kind of tweak and expand his duties as he sees fit and he was given quite a lot of leeway you know so by 1972 he was a career army officer who specialized in psychological operations and he liaised with mi5 and army intelligence and he was also attached to 14 intelligence company now 14 intelligence company's brief was to disrupt subvert and gain control of both loyalist and republican paramilitary groups in order to hasten the end of the Troubles. And as with other outfits that he was a part of, 14 Intelligence Company was also accused of offering covert support to loyalist groups and running death squads that targeted Catholics. Colin Wallace would be one of the only voices raising these issues, you know, with uh, his supervisors, his managers. Um, and this was because by the early to mid-1970s, something in him had begun to shift. Now, of this period in his career, Wallace wrote this in 1992, quote, Having been a member of the Ulster Special Constabulary, the B-Specials, a captain in the Ulster Defence Regiment, and the senior information officer at Army Headquarters in the province, I have no doubt that since as far back as the early 70s, loyalist paramilitary groups have been manipulated by the intelligence services. I recall the serious concerns some of my colleagues at Army Headquarters in Lisbon and I felt in 1973 following the confession made by a soldier who'd operated as part of what was known as the UDA's number one assassination team. The soldier, Albert Baker, was later sentenced to life imprisonment on specimen charges involving four murders and 11 robberies. There was no doubt that he had been working for the intelligence services during the time when he was a member of the UDA assassination squad, and there was no doubt about the panic that seized the intelligence community. 
I also remember that worries about intelligence involvement with paramilitary groups grew during 1974, when it became clear that some individuals were orchestrating sectarian violence at the end of that year in order to wreck the ceasefire talks which were then taking place. Throughout 1974, the average monthly number of assassinations had been six, but in November, when the two sides were engaged in negotiations, the number rose to 26. In 1975, the Irish press spoke about collusion between loyalist paramilitaries and the security forces to effect assassinations, and quoted a member of the Ulster Volunteer Force. Quote within a quote, I can guarantee that with 90% of the people we have taken action against, we have an army photograph to go along with the obituary. We must face it. There are security forces personnel who agree with our standpoints. Let's say there is a thin line between UVF membership and security forces membership in certain areas. He also wrote this in the same piece, London Review of Books. Quote, at the centre of the debate about paramilitary collusion with the security forces is the belief held by both Catholics and Protestants that the law is not enforced when the intelligence services are involved in criminal activities. Wallace was so trusted in his role at 14 Intelligence that he was approached by a faction of disaffected officers in MI5, and he was asked to lend his PSYOP skills to a major new project they were working on. Now, the details surrounding this are still extremely murky and contested, but what we do know is part of the project was called Clockwork Orange, and this was intended to be way bigger than a scare story about Satanism or a smear job of some provincial IRA commander, because Clockwork Orange was aiming for nothing less than the overthrow of a democratically elected British government. To unlock the rest of this episode, please head over to patreon.com forward slash ghost stories for the end.